phasing big projects is a very big, um, it's an opportunity, right? So you don't have to necessarily do it all at one time. So if you have a, a $10 million roof project, the chances that every square inch of that $10 million roof needs to go day one is probably unlikely. So you need to know what makes sense to strategically phase out a project like that so that you don't bite off more than you can chew or you don't leave yourself in a position where you have to undo work you've already done in order to tie in a new system or, or anything like that. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Podcast, where Kyle Curtin takes you on an extraordinary journey alongside renowned multifamily real estate sponsors and syndication experts from every corner of the United States. We teach you how to harness the power of passive real estate investing and witness the transformation of your wealth building strategy. Let's create wealth together. What's up, guys? Welcome to episode 117 of the Creating Wealth podcast. I am your host, Kyle Curtin. I am a co-GP specializing in investor relations and capital raising for multifamily sponsors. Today, we get the great pleasure of chatting with Dan Milanazzo, the extraordinary owner and operator of Real Value Ventures. We're super excited to have him on today. Dan, what's going on, my man? How the heck are you? Fantastic. Happy to be here, buddy. How you doing? Oh, I am doing swell, man. Super excited to um, to be able to sit down with you today and and jump into your story, man, and, and what you got going on now. And yeah, super excited to, to jump in. So to kind of get us started, you know, tell us a little bit about your backstory, you know, from kind of the humble beginnings to where you are now, what's kind of going on, uh, you know, for the, the near future. The floor is yours. Sure. Um, well, I grew up in, uh, in construction. My father uh, owned and operated a building envelope business. So roofing, siding, windows, things like that. Um, so I grew up picking up shingles and slate when I was a, a little boy, um, picking up nails. I used to get paid by the nail. So that was, that was a bit different back then. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I went to school, uh, fell in love with uh, architecture and CAD design, things like that. Um, so I decided to pursue uh, architecture in college. And during that education, I had the ability to kind of co-op with an architect and a building envelope consulting company. And I realized I was more figure it out engineering mindset than drawing really good pictures. So I kind of shied away from architecture and focused more on the engineering side of that equation. Um, and then uh, after I graduated, I, I was with that engineering firm for uh, almost a decade and uh, put in quite a bit of work there, uh, doing a lot of work in the condo world. And then I went to work for a large multifamily uh, REIT national, uh, and I supported all their construction up in the Northeast. And that's where I eventually got my master's of construction management. Um, so along the years, I've, I've worn a lot of the hats. Uh, I've, I've swung the hammer. I've worked with a couple of GCs, actually did uh, work with a local GC um, that's in the building envelope arena for a couple of years. And uh, I do projects on my own and I've, I've done some flip work, things like that. Um, but yeah, I'd like to say I'm pretty handy. So I've, I've been on the construction side, on the architecture side, on the engineering side, on the owner side. Um, I do own and invest in multifamily myself. I have a couple of units locally and, uh, always looking to branch that out and, you know, get into other syndications and, you know, get a little bit more passive on some, but I also like the, the active component of some of these deals. So it's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. I, I absolutely love it. You know, and it's, I always thought your story was pretty interesting, um, especially from a couple different angles, right? Of like seeing the investing world from multiple different ways from being an investor yourself, um, you know, with some, some smaller multis and stuff to a little bit bigger multis, um, you know, to as well as working in that, uh, like the re space and seeing it from a drastically different angle um, you know, in, in the construction type of lens. Uh, yeah, I think it's extremely cool, man. You know what I mean? And, um, tell us a little bit about like in the, the REIT world, tell us kind of what, like, a 
tell us kind of like what you did, I guess, like the most often, like what were kind of like some of the like key, like most common, um, like a, like a day to day, I guess you could kind of say, um, okay. just generally speaking, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Data day to day was a bit different. Cause, uh, I mean, I was supporting, uh, I think at, at the max, I want to say about 6,000 units, um, spread out across 19 or maybe 20 communities. Um, uh, up in the Boston area, for the most part, I did do some work down in like Maryland and supported some other work down in like Florida, things like that. The company was national, you know what I mean? So they, we had a pretty good footprint. Uh, but my role was everything CapEx, everything below the line um, would kind of fall to me. And sometimes that translated into property management and maintenance teams on the property, not having the budget to tackle some of their maintenance needs. So unfortunately, those maintenance needs gets deferred. I'm sure you guys have dealt with, you know, listening to the term deferred maintenance. It's it's not a fun thing because when the maintenance gets deferred enough, it eventually falls below the line, turns into a capital need. So it falls off the expense side of the equation, but now it's a capital need and you need to take take care of it. Um, otherwise, you'll be chasing expenses forever. So it's it's a little bit hard there. Um, but I mean, for all of these assets, you know, again, I was supporting, you know, 18 to 20 different communities uh, in the greater Boston region, and they all had very, very different needs. I mean, we had class A brand new out of the ground buildings, and we had some C class properties, some affordable properties, things like that, and very, very different. So every property had its own set of challenges. Um, and it was really presenting the right projects that need to be done at the right time and why. Um, so part of it was on a regular basis, um, on a, like an annual and a continually rolling basis, was I'd have to inspect these properties and keep a, keep a log updated on what the capital needs are for this community. So every couple of years, we do a deep dive PCA, property condition assessment, or a CNA, a capital needs assessment. And, and we try to lay out the, the biggest um, capital projects that should be considered at each individual property. And some of these properties I'd be putting, hey, you need a $50,000 garage door uh, in the next year or two. But then in the same breath, I'd be saying, yeah, at this other community, which is 10 times the size, you need $2 million worth of roofing. Um, so the, the range of projects was, was definitely different, uh, and the, the class of projects very different, but as portfolio, I had to look at that across the plate because it was all one ownership and kind of look at it in a way of, you know, I know that the number one project at this class, a property might be a $50,000 garage door, but the number one project need at this 900 unit complex might be brand new pavement and i'd have to kind of strategize where the money made sense to go um so there was a lot of constant moving and then just out of the blue you'd get a random insurance loss catastrophic loss would throw the major wrench right in the works and uh it would be an all hands on deck go deal with a massive flood uh or or you know uh, a, an unfortunate fire things like that i mean we've had water mains break in the middle of a creek bed in the middle of winter uh, and then having to redirect a creek so that we could get to this pipe which also happened to run under the corner of a building um it, it definitely had its own challenges for sure so it was never the same thing day to day um so it definitely kept me on my toes yeah yeah no i <clears throat> I, I can definitely imagine man you know what i mean and i think it's it's incredible like how how unique it is like just seeing that from different perspectives and that actually kind of brings me to a question um, that I did want to to ask you is like when you first buy a property, right? Or like the first time that, you know, a, a syndication is, um, you know, you close, it's acquired. Like, how do you kind of, um, you know, like step on site, uh, I guess, kind of like theoretically speaking of like, all right, like what's kind of like the first step to figuring out like what this capex plan looks like and like what are kind of like i guess kind of like what's your i guess like standard operating procedure in a way of figuring out like what the immediate um like urgent items are versus maybe things that you can kind of like space out like how do you kind of like yeah. navigate something like that 
So for that, you, you really need to understand the business plan a little bit, right? So um, the business plan for, so I supported a lot of acquisitions and due diligence uh, and disposition due diligence as well. And you, it's it sounds funny, disposition due diligence, but I can dive into that as well. But I mean, I supported over a billion dollars worth of transactions in the multifamily real estate space. And when you look at a brand new acquisition opportunity, it's, it's hard because during the due diligence phase, a lot of flags will come up. I mean, just like when you buy a single family home, you get the home inspection and the home inspector lists everything, right? Like, oh, there's, there's a crack in the baseboard. And it's like, yeah, that shouldn't kill your deal, but it's something <laughs> to be aware of, right? So my job was identify everything. And so I would bring a, a team with me to do the due diligence work. Um, and I would gather all that data and I would look at it all and it's like, all right, in a vacuum, you know, hey, what's the, let's say the worst problem, right? Let's say the property is is experiencing active leaks and damage and poor customer satisfaction from a roof, right? That kind of puts that on the high end of, hey, you really need to take care of this. But at the same time, let's say that that, uh, that leak is maybe in a trash room or a back of house utility space it doesn't necessarily get the same type of attention that you would think it would, but it's a, it's a mix of what is your business model? What's your business plan, right? If you're going in and you're going to redevelop, you're going to rebrand a property, uh, which was a lot of what we did. We would go in there and kind of scratch off everything and say, this is, this is going to be part of our brand. So we have to apply our brand to everything. And we had a certain model that we do. So knowing the operator, the owner and the operator's, uh, ultimate goal with this property, whether it's a, we're just going to reposition it and get rid of it in three years, or this is a long-term long -term hold core property for us is going to definitely change what I'd recommend, right? So it's like, if it's a short-term hold, then it's a, what are the, the, the loudest, right? What's the squeakiest wheel? That's where you want to put the attention. But if it's a long-term hold for you, then customer satisfaction is actually going to do a lot more in the driving of what projects you tackle first, because ultimately if customers aren't satisfied, your, your loss to lease is going to be like incredible. You're going to be like way off market because Yelp has a lot of effect. Google reviews have a lot of effect. <laughs> so if those are the type of things you're watching, then you have to weigh it. You have to weigh it in. Right. So um, it's hard to say that there's a, a perfect formula without knowing an owner and operator's uh, business plan on what their what their position is on this property and whether it's a quick turn it and get it capitalized again, or we're going to hang on to this for, for forever. You know, we're going to look at it very differently and put the money up front into the, the projects that have the best bang for the buck, you know? Gotcha. I think it makes a lot of sense, man. And I, I really like that, um, that take on it. You know, I mean, even like, yeah, like just kind of like taking everything into account and kind of figuring out what the, the most effective and applicable use of, you know, like the reserve capital or whatever it is, um, you know, in comparison to like what the plan is, like the the length, uh, like the forecasted length of the hold period, um, just what the plan is overall. You know, I, I really like that, man. It makes a lot of sense. You know, I mean, even like yeah. even thinking about it in a on the complete opposite end of the spectrum of like, you know, if you just buy like a two family or a three family or something. And it's like, all right, you know, like I'm probably going to hold it for like, you know, 20 years or, you know, 10 years, whatever it is. And like how you navigate that on a much a drastically smaller lens, um, right. you know, in comparing that to like, you know, a humongous like skyscraper, like beast, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's cool. It, it's yeah, a really, mean, when, you're, when you're dealing with those, those big type of projects too, there are things that you might not necessarily fully understand. You know what I mean? You get into a property that, that is a really big property and what might not be like in your face all the time, right? It could be something that's just a ticking time bomb. Yeah. You know, I can't tell you how many times we've walked into these beautiful big properties and you realize that there are things in the background happening, but Hey, as long as they're still performing, we're fine. And then you find out your, your domestic tank just went and that domestic tank supports a hundred units. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. That's not good. When your domestic supply gets impacted by like that, uh, it's not a quick fix. You know what I mean? And it has such long-term impact on your customer. So you have to be aware of 
if like you have to forecast out a little bit of, hey, if we don't do this project, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. Right. And then, you know, weigh that against all the other things. So it's 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 a really extreme example of like a cost benefit analysis, but you have to do it quickly in your head because you don't have six months to kind of wrap your head around all the different assessments and all the different things you could do. Um, but it's, it's similar in a way to doing like reserve study um, inspections for condominiums, right? So I, I've done a lot of reserve studies where these condominiums might not be 300 units, but they still have a lot to deal with because there's a lot of common area components, whether it's pavement, roofing, shared siding, things like that or if it's shared utility systems that you have to tackle you have to understand what the big picture is and what happens if something goes down but also lay out all the options because what a lot of people don't don't really take into account is if we don't do the capital project today we can just do it in three five years but it's like yeah but are you actually tracking enough on the cash flow side and putting enough away in reserves to be able to tackle that in most cases that might not be the the situation so if you're not cash flowing enough and if you don't put away enough reserves number one your your investors are going to get hurt by that right because if you're either over banking in your reserves your investors aren't getting the payout that maybe they want or if you're not banking anything in reserves the last thing you want to do is put a capital call into your investors and say hey you know how when we bought this property, there was $3 million worth of initial CapEx we were going to do, but we only took off $2 million? Well, that wow. other million dollars we didn't do on day one, we thought we'd be able to make it up in cash flow over the next five to 10 years. We're going to come up a million short. Like, you know, what do you do? Ouch. At that point, you have to recapitalize it, right? So whether you refinance it, you sell it, you do something like that, and you make it the next person's, the next buyer's uh, problem. And then the million dollars worth of CapEx that you didn't do, turns into a million and a half or $2 million on somebody else's spreadsheet. When they underwrite it, they're going to underwrite it much higher than you underwrote it. So you have to stay, you have to stay in tune with any projects that you don't decide to do. You have to watch those projects because if it's a commodity that is volatile, right? So like roofing products, petroleum based products, things like that, your roof today might cost you a million dollars. But if you decide, you know what, I'm not going to do it. And then the petroleum commodity like skyrockets, well, that million dollar roof is now going to cost you $2 million in, in a year. You know what I mean? That's not unheard of, especially now with, with what everybody's seen with COVID, with the material prices skyrocketing. I mean, I was helping a buddy price up a project the other day. Again, this is kind of where it's not big multifamily stuff. It's a friend of mine that was doing a project. And he's like, hey, help me budget this. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I know I was paying around like, 70 cents a square foot a couple of years ago for this, but I haven't really done that work in a while. Let me just double check it on you, but you might want to carry a little bit more, like maybe carry a buck. And when I actually ran the numbers and I pulled up all this info, I'm like, it's a buck 30. And he's like, how long ago was the 70? And I'm like, yeah, that was maybe three years ago. And it's like in three years, material price on this one project doubled. And it's like, and you can't make that up. You know what I mean? Like you can't necessarily properly prepare for that unless you're watching these things on a regular basis. Yeah, that's wild, man. And it's it's incredibly interesting to me, like how much, like, like how that like affects like everybody throughout the entire like ecosystem, like in the entire environment, right? Of like, you know, not, not having somebody like on your team, you know, that, that has like, a particular knowledge especially you know like a, as deep as as the knowledge of yours you know and stuff like that um to be able to see some of those things coming down the pipeline like you know pretty far away you know what i mean and how that can impact exactly like you said like oh you know like now this thing's an extra you know like 50 cents a square foot and you need like you know a, a ton of square feet or whatever it is now there's like a huge unexpected expense well that's going to keep going like up the funnel and, you know, affect like returns. Hopefully there's not a capital call there. If there is a capital call, now your investors get pissed. Your investors don't come back. Like, it, it's funny. Like, it's, well, it's not funny, but like, it's, it's interesting how it, it all like spider webs, like from the bottom, you know what I mean? Of like having just an incredibly deep understanding of the actual physical construction aspect and the structure and the plan right. that surrounds that and just how that affects everybody as a whole down to the passive investors on the other side of that. You know, it's it's friggin' incredible, man. 
Right. Um, and that's why you wow. have to really have a, a good partnership with the sponsors of a deal or be on that sponsorship team so that you can, you're not going to make the, the final decision. You know yeah. what I mean? One person, I could tell you till I'm blue in the face, you should really do this project. And regardless of my experience or whatever, there might be other factors at play, which is why I don't do multifamily investing on my own. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's, there are other experts involved in the deal that are watching other pieces of the project and other pieces of the business plan. And you just have to be open and aware of what's happening there because I've, I've been in scenarios and I've, I've known plenty of people like this that are so bullheaded when it comes to this is the project you need to do and they don't care about anything else. And then you end up talking to the finance guy who's on the, the sponsorship team and they're like, look, we're getting debt at this percent. We can raise this much equity. And the way that this works out, our best bang for the buck is maybe let's not do an entire like multi-million dollar roof renovation, but let's go ahead and do like a 20% upgrade of the units. Let's do a kitchen and bath upgrade and start to push the rents up. And that will hopefully, you know, either put us in a better position to sell down the road or it will boost our cash flows enough to fund pieces of that. And then you have to wrap your head around how can we phase it? Phasing big projects is a very big, um, it's an opportunity, right? So you don't have to necessarily do it all at one time. So if you have a, a $10 million roof project, the chances that every square inch of that $10 million roof needs to go day one is probably unlikely. So you need to know what makes sense to strategically phase out a project like that so that you don't bite off more than you can chew or you don't leave yourself in a position where you have to undo work you've already done in order to tie in a new system or, or anything like that. And that's true for everything, whether it's, you know, whether it's an electrical upgrade for an entire building or, or you know, pavement, you know, you can you have to look at things as it doesn't have to be the full boat. Right. But you just have to understand if you do 50 percent of a million dollar job today, it might cost you six hundred thousand dollars. And you ask, why is it not half the price? And it's like, well, there are certain mobilization costs and certain costs that are just inherent with running a project of that size that get baked into that number so that you can't just divide that number in half. You could divide the scope in half, but your number might not divide perfectly in half. And then when Gosh. you go to do the second half next year, now it's 750. So now you just turned a million dollar job into a $1.3 million, $1.4 million job. And wow. you just have to be able to prepare yourself for what that might look like. Um, and I, I mean, I know it very well because one of the projects that I, <laughs> I, I just like recently ran through was um, it was a, a, a new acquisition and it was a, uh, it was supposed to be a million dollar window repair project. And as we dug into it a little bit, it turned into like a $7 million window replacement project. And obviously somebody missed the boat there, right? So the, the experts and the report that we had, the executive memo was pushing repair, repair, repair. And, you know, during the conversation, I, you know, I presented it as, as well as I could that we need to replace these windows, but it didn't work in the underwriting. It didn't look very good. And it's like, all right, well then we should really carry a little bit more because the repair is probably not going to be the best approach. These are old windows anyway. And you don't really want to spend million, $2 million repairing 20 year old windows. You should yeah. maybe phase out. Let's do a $2 million portion of replacement. You know what I mean? And let's see how far that can stretch. And then it was, okay, well, how many more can we do? if we can really like get some really good financing options for this, whether it's local grants, you know what I mean? A lot of communities have grants when you do an exterior work. So if you have somebody paying attention to that side of the equation, they can go and they can apply for grants. And next thing you know, your $7 million window replacement project that you only budgeted $2 million because you thought it was a repair project. There's a $5 million Delta there that, you know what, let's do $2 million worth of replacements on the worst $2 million. And it's not pick and choose, right? You have to be strategic about whether it's a stack of windows or whether it's an entire floor of windows, depending on what you need to access and things like that. And then whatever's left, can you go for certain grants and can you go for certain subsidized support and, and do those projects? Um, and especially if it's a, if it's a low income property, 
there's a lot of government assistance on projects like that as long as it's approved and presented in the right way. Wow. That's incredible, man. It, it really is, you know, like, and it's, it's so interesting, like how, how, like, like, I guess all the, like the facets of that, you know, inside of, you know, something that could be like a five to seven to like 10 year project, like all like the strat, the strategizing and like, you know, and, um, you know, kind of like, like testing things out and stuff like that. Like you just mentioned, like, you know, with that window example of like, just being strategic of like how much that you're allocating towards something like that, you know, is it like the best situation for what's going on? Um, is it possible to be able to test out, um, you know, that type of thing, you know, see how things go and then be able to like carry that on, uh, in, in different phases and stuff like that. That's, that's really cool stuff, man. It's not, yeah. So I did. That's, I that's do... really the big, the big picture stuff. But I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of a smaller, uh, uh, kind of more palatable pieces of uh, the physical asset management and the asset management in general that uh, that come into play on a regular basis as well. Yeah. Yeah. No. I I love it, man. I I definitely have some more questions for you, Dan. I do I do want to ask you about um your company though, and like kind of how you got started, like what you guys do. I feel like it, it's a nice transition from like what we were just talking about, um, as well as, you know, kind of the, the following, you know, kind of questions that I have for you. I, I, what is RBV, man? I'd love to, to tell, tell everybody, you know? Yeah. So uh, Real Value Ventures, um, it's actually a company I've had for, for a while uh, where I, you know, outside of working in the, the big national multifamily REIT space was I was pursuing some multifamily uh, acquisitions on my own and consulting and supporting um, other uh, investors in the space. So the mission now is um, to really to support large multifamily owners scale their operation uh, because what I'm what I'm seeing a lot in the space, especially over the last couple of years, is a, a wave of owner operators and sponsors that scaled so fast that they don't have the infrastructure in place to support their continued growth and yeah. really help solidify their foundation. You know what I mean? So our, our mission now is to kind of take some of that stress uh, off the plate of owner operators that are stuck in the grind of asset management. And they really just want to go out and find another deal. And maybe they don't speak the language of the contractor or they can't really negotiate the right change orders because they don't, they don't know what's legitimate and what's not. Right. And so there's been this this upswell of uh, of investors that um, were very well protected from mistakes because the market just buried all of it. Right. So you can make a big mistake. And then next thing you know, you're raising rent 25 percent. It's like, yeah, what mistake? You know, what <laughs> I mean? like, you, don't, you don't feel it. Um, so my goal is to prevent people from feeling that pain too late. Um, and companies that are are growing, but they're not big enough to, to really bring in an entire in-house construction, you know, team to support those endeavors. Um, I can kind of plug into those systems, educate, navigate, help consult um, and guide them on that path. Um, and it can be as simple as like scopes and specifications. You know, uh, a lot of a lot of the scaling uh, owner and operators are used to having handshake deals. It's if they're flipping a six family, maybe you don't write a full-blown contract for that. But when you're now dealing with 600 units, um, you need to bring a certain level of professionalism to the table uh, because your expectations are going to be much higher. And what might slip on a six family could end up costing you and your investors multiples of, of a loss. You know what I mean? And you want to protect yourself from that. So um, it's a different level of sophistication when you're running big projects and scaling to that size and you can't run those projects like you would a six family flip or, or something like that. Um, so sometimes you just need guidance on what needs to be done and how best to do it. So you need somebody to write the instruction manual for you. So we can support with specifications and scope writing to kind of lay it all out so that all of your contractors are bidding apples to apples. Everyone's looking at the insane instruction manual and they're going to tell you what it's going to cost. And then even more, everyone's bidding it, hopefully on your bid form. 
Whenever I bid a project, it is coming through on my bid form so that I expect a bid to be broken out in a certain way, right? Yeah. I want to see, you know, five line items. I want you to break your price down into these five chunks so that when I compare you to your three competitors on this project, I can see line by line who's maybe not sure what they're doing and who is a little, you know, overzealous on, on the project. Yeah. Um, and then the next piece from that is, is acting as an owner's rep, right? So let's say you have your project underway, but you know, you just don't have the time to monitor the project because you have other things going on. You're trying to buy the next deal or something like that. So, you know, we can step in as an owner's rep service where we stand between the owner and the contractor or the owner and the owner's project management team and kind of help bridge that gap, right? At the end of the day, our, our job is to advocate for and represent the owner and protect the owner's interests. And the best part is, is we're call it bilingual. We can speak the language of the owner because we also know investing and we can speak the language of contractors because I own plenty of tools <laughs> and I've, <laughs> I've put up plenty of stuff on my own um, that I can, I can bridge that gap um, better than some owner operators. Um, so the, that then leads into the next piece of it, which is like owner's project, uh, project management, which is a little bit more hands-on. Um, it's more support in writing the contracts and managing the day-to-day, -day, or at least kind of laying out the groundwork for the day-to-day -day management, uh, whether it's a site team that's involved, but kind of building the expectations and checking in and holding everyone accountable along the way. Um, and then that last piece that I mentioned earlier is the the long-term physical asset management, where that's more of a, it's it's not like a simple quick hit, like a spec and a scope. I can write a, a spec and a scope, give it to you, and, and we could never see each other again. Hopefully that's not the case, but when you're on the asset management side, it's not a snapshot, right? You can't be a successful asset manager by taking a snapshot. It is a constant evolution in the business needs, in the community needs, in everything. So as the financial and economic world changes, your business plan may change. And do you have somebody that can translate that into what it means for your physical asset? Like maybe you don't do as big of an update on your property this year, but maybe you spread it out a little bit more or all of a sudden, I mean, there was a day, I don't know what the day was, it's not on my calendar, but there was a day in history where all of a sudden, renters demanded in-unit laundry, right? And I can't tell you, like of all the, the communities <laughs> that I've supported in the past years, a small percentage of them in the past decade, like when I started doing this multifamily stuff, a small percentage of them had in-unit laundry. And then fast forward a decade, a very small percentage of these properties did not have in-unit laundry. You know what I mean? Because it became an expectation of the market. And if you're not aware and you're not tied into the, the property and the plan long-term, you'll miss that boat. And then you're making a knee-jerk reaction and maybe it'll cost you more in the long run. So. Damn. That's wild, man. That's, that's so valuable, man. Like it's, oh my goodness. And I, that's, you're totally right, man. And I, I can speak to, uh, to the washer dryer thing from personal experience. Cause I'm trying to rent a unit without one on site right now. And I haven't gotten any bites. <laughs> so I can definitely, uh, definitely hear you there in, in a different way. Um, so yeah, I think that's, in, that's incredible, man. And one thing that I did want to bring up is like, how do you navigate the dynamic of, you know, kind of like how much, uh, I guess uh, I'm trying to figure out like how to word it. So having like the, uh, the market's expectations for on like the physical, um, I guess like construction amenities, uh, you know, type aside in comparison to like the business plan and like the forecasted rents, you know, just kind of matching up, you know, like the, um, uh, like the sponsors have like the business plan set up, they have the certain assumptions for, you know, those particular rents. How do you come in as, um, you know, someone that's like, you know, essentially telling them like, oh, hey, like you, you know, to achieve market rents like this, like you need like, you know, uh, like granite countertops or like, like kind of like matching up the expectation, I guess, for like what the what the spreadsheet says, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. So the I mean, the easiest way to do it and it is a bit um 
it's a bit of an older way to do things, but you have to shop your competition. Like mm -hmm. spreadsheets can give you so much information. I mean, you can go to CoStar, Yardi. You can you can bring those big systems and software into into your operation, and they give you really good spreadsheet data, right? But if you are are niched down into a market, you need to shop your competition, right? You need to go. You need to act as a prospect. You need to see not just their their physical offering, but their personal offering, right? Like is their leasing team maybe a little bit more friendly? Um, when you walk in, do they offer you water? I mean, it, it ultimately comes down to you, you're stealing the best ideas from your competition, right? Gotcha. Or as you're going through this, and this is, this is just as true as stealing what's working, is you realize what does not work, right? So if you walk into a property and you're completely ignored, you probably realize that's not a feeling I want my prospects to feel when they walk into my communities, uh, right? So you're like, all right, what not to do? Let's improve upon that. Or as you're going through all these different things, you start to realize there might be a missing opportunity here. And I'll, I'll give you a, a, very, a very random um, example of that is while I was with the, the REIT, um, I went through a bit of a training program. And part of that program was um, to be innovative, right? They they promoted innovation and change in the organization. So they always wanted you to be thinking outside the box, come up with the next great thing because they're a giant REIT, right? So they have more backing than your mom and pops, right? They're they're not gonna mom and pops aren't gonna set the set the tone. They're not gonna test things out, but yeah. the bigger REITs are a little bit more capable of taking that risk. So they did. And as part of this, this uh, program I was in, um, I actually developed, we had some, some assets coming on the market in Cambridge, right? And Cambridge is a very expensive market. And we were realizing that, well, I was realizing, it was part of my, my project, was I realized that some of our units were actually pigeonholing us into a smaller opportunity than we could. The difference at the time between a studio and like a one bed, let's say, was drastic. And with the floor plan of some of these properties, our studios were generous sized, or even our one beds were a little bit more generous sized just because of the, the way the property landed on this uh, this block. So I'm, I'm sure you've heard of Murphy beds, um, things like that, that like pop up into the wall. In, Jap in Japan, um, there's a lot of that. In New York, they start doing a lot of that where they make such a small footprint feel so much larger because it, it turns into a transformer. Right. Your unit becomes a transformer. Yeah. And so it wasn't really an, an adopted thing in Cambridge. And the project that I came up with was a moving wall that would help divide a somewhat generous sized living room into a temporary or a smaller sleeping quarter um, to get better use out of the space, especially if it was a short term use. Right. Because especially in that area at the time, this was probably five, six years ago. Um, we were seeing people kind of bring in their their parents let's say is you know what my parents need a place to go they sold their big house and you know wanted to stay with us for a little while before they go and retire down south so people were accommodating family and extended extended stays from people so i actually came up with this plan of this like moving wall and it was a fun concept um it was a little more on the expensive side so we didn't implement it but um I actually left the company for a period of time, came back after two years, and sure enough, uh, they had found a company that was starting to pre-build these devices, these like structures, um, and they started putting them into some of the units. What? And it's just like, I mean, that is innovation, right? And it was like, ah, I wish I was here to see them implement it because I felt like it was, it was like my baby. I had come up with that. Now I know I'm not the the father of that idea. It's just in our portfolio at the time, it would have been the innovation. And yeah. it just happened to be implemented after I left because they found some value in that idea. But the implementation, the way I had built it out, because I didn't flush it out well enough, it was just too cost prohibitive until they found somebody that was able to build it a little bit cheaper. And they started to employ it in a percentage of their units. And then it increased the value of those units. So now they created a new segment of the market 
in those properties where instead of having a studio or instead of having a one bed and a two bed, they had this like interim unit where it could be a convertible. So people would pay a little bit more than a one bed because it had the ability to transform, uh, but they didn't want to pay a full two bed price because it didn't have as much square footage. So it's, it was an interesting idea, but the same type of thing that you see, everyone's going digital now, right? With their keys and their locks Um, that had to start somewhere. Somebody probably did a tour of a, actually somebody probably did a tour of a REIT. You know what I mean? A, A large corporation's property and they're like oh wow look at this and they realized i'm gonna go ahead and try that and in the grand scheme of things as an organization as, as an industry right we need companies like the reits we we need these big organizations to take those risks so that they can make it a little bit more affordable for the mom and pops to start implementing these things and they kind of get the learning curve out of the way And then a lot of us follow suit with that. I mean, I happen to own an EV now and EV chargers became the hottest thing that we were doing in that portfolio. Um, And now every, it was part of the brand, right? As soon as we do an acquisition, we would implement an EV station. It was just part of it. Um, And then it became synonymous with if, if that's the type of demographic you're going after, then you know that this this particular company, uh, this brand of multifamily product units, uh, that's the way you want to go because you know that they cater to that type of, uh, of, of end buyer, end user. So it's really just, it's a long way around saying, shop your competition, see what they're doing right and wrong and learn from it. Don't try to figure it all out on your own if you, um, if you can avoid it because you don't want to have to spend 10x to learn that lesson when somebody else has already done it. That's neat, man. Holy crap. Wow. It, it makes a whole lot of sense, man. It's, it's incredibly interesting, like how it works. Like it's, it's almost like a, like, like circle of life and like the, like an economic, um, you know, real estate type of space of like, you know, the, the top guys, top of the food chain, you know, highest bu- budgets, biggest buildings, the ones that can actually, you know, potentially have the, the bandwidth and the capability to experiment without like exactly like you mentioned taking like a huge risk you know instead like in comparison to like you know somebody with like a six family trying to do like like experiment with like a wall you know in like a unit like that of their own and like if things work out friggin phenomenal like you're the like pioneer of the year but if they don't it's like oh shit like you know i just lost you know (laughs) six months of cash flow you know like oh no um but no, I think that's incredibly, um, incredibly cool, man. Like just like the whole like macroeconomic sense of of how that type of thing works and how like the innovation comes about and like how it kind of comes from the top and, and kind of makes its way down in a way, um, you know, and see, let the market kind of decide of like what sticks and what doesn't and, and how you adapt right. accordingly, you know, as time goes on. Um, that's incredible. Yeah, probably the biggest the biggest thing as well is like, I mean, again, we, we keep coming back to like the smaller mom and pops because at the end of the day, I'm a mom and pop, right? I have a couple of units, but I don't have like the units of a REIT. Um, <laughs> yet. <laughs> yet, exactly. But the, the big takeaway uh, to some of that is when you're, when you're dealing. So one of the communities that I supported was, was over 900 units in one footprint. Okay. So it was uh, a wide open property. Uh, beautiful property setback. You had lots of trees. It was it was a different era of building and multifamily, right? Not these super dense, compact uh, uh, buildings that you have now, but this was spread out over acres and n- over 900 units in this property. When you have that many units in a small, relatively small footprint, you are setting your own market in your own little like ecosystem here, right? So you can test things on a building by building basis and a floor by floor basis. I mean, when when I underwrite multifamily, when all the sponsors that I know are underwriting multifamily and they're going from like six, 12, 20 units to like 500 units, they, they underwrite in a way that is, all right, you're treating every unit the same. So a two bedroom is a two bedroom is a two bedroom. That couldn't be further from the truth. Because a two bedroom that has a pond view on the top floor should have a premium attached to it. Uh, a two bedroom located in a building that 
you just updated the hallway you have brand new paint brand new flooring brand new wallpaper brand new light fixtures the two bedroom in that building should be more expensive than the two bedroom in a legacy building that has like really old and outdated wallpaper and everything like that so you have the ability to test all of those theories in a relatively protected environment in your own backyard and see what works what doesn't work and i think that's what benefits like big organizations and big properties so i recommend when you're when you're looking at these bigger type properties for for any owner operators out there that are that are listening to this is be conservative in your underwriting but when it comes to actually putting your business plan in place test your boundaries right pick some buildings to do a full-blown renovation and see hey can we really get an extra fifty dollars a unit because we did the hallway over and we added led fixtures and we did this and did that because not only if you change all your fixtures to led you're going to be saving on your expense line anyway and we know that if you save on expense your noi is going to be supported right it's going to be better uh, better for it and if you increase your revenue because instead of having a unit that's the exact same price top middle and bottom floor right if you can get an extra $15 premium for a middle unit and an extra $20 uh, premium for the top unit, you've just increased your NOI quite a bit if you have 900 units and you can now <laughs> say the top third of these buildings can get a $20 premium. You've now kind of pushed your market up a little bit and you still have a, a, you still have product that is in line with the market, right? You, you'll always be able to keep that in line but you always have the ability to push that market limit just a little bit because you have so much inventory to deal with. Wow. That's mind blowing, man. Holy crap. Especially like, like you mentioned, like, you know, having multiple buildings in one, um, like in, in one property or something, man. Like, I mean, think about it. It's, it's kind of like, uh, when people do like, like split testing for like, like marketing campaigns, like exactly. try like different yep. mailers, whatever it is. It's that, but like in a completely like macroeconomic type of way that can subtly or I don't I don't know what the opposite of subtly is more prominently, I guess, affect, um, you know, like the relatively comparable uh, type of buildings around you. That's cool, man. Like that's that's yeah. something that's really interesting is like. Wow, like that's it's just it's such a such a incredible conversation of like the experimentation um while still staying risk averse and like you said you know like if it's something like um you know buying like the uh more um you know like price friendly lights or uh whatever it is there the high led whatever it is um it's gonna help you anyway you know because like you said it's gonna you know drop your uh expense items a little bit jack up your noi a little bit and like why not experiment too? You know what I mean? And kind of see like how the market reacts to that type of thing. Like that's, that's right. such a, a crazy thought of like, yeah, you know, like there's that, like the optimal condition that, you know, you want that building to be in, you know, three, five, seven, ten 10 years down the line, whatever that, um, that term length looks like, but also like you might be able to add your own flavor to it and like try some things out and like not be risking like, you know, a, like basis points of returns to like, you know, try out something, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. Um, right. That, you know, the, the rest of the market could, you know, follow suit to some degree. I, I think that's extremely cool. Like the influence in itself, you know, in addition to your deal, but how that could also trickle off into, um, into other parts of the market as well. That's neat. Yeah. And you can't just, you can't just focus on the top line of, Hey, can we increase revenue, increase revenue? Because you're going to hit a ceiling, right? Yeah. You can't just keep, keep, keep doing like, if you put a, 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 a keypad on your door, it's not, I don't think people are going to be paying an extra $5 a month because of it. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Oh my God. I, I so didn't want to carry keys. Like there's some convenience factor. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, when you look more on the expense side, that really is one of the main driving forces behind why our properties did all keyless entry, because the amount of time when you actually look at you, when you go back and you do the historic review of your work orders, and this is another benefit of the bigger organizations, you can track better, right? You have more data to, to pull from. And I think as smaller operators, we need to leverage that knowledge as much as we can, because 
they've already done the testing, right? They've already done the split testing of how long does it take to rekey a lock? How long does it take to, you know, get dig a key out of a lock that somebody snapped off? Or, yeah. you know, you, you end up having to uh, change out the whole cylinder and all that. Like when you're dealing with hundreds of units, it's, it's, it's a time suck, right? And if you're paying, let's say you're paying a maintenance tech $30 an hour and it takes them an hour to deal with all that, that's 30 bucks in expense that that unit had. Now you put a keyless lock on there and somebody gets locked out. And if you have a full smart system, it's like checking your app and unlocking the door remotely and or reissuing another code. And it costs you maybe five, 10 minutes. You know what I mean? So now you're under yeah. $10. So you just saved $20. You added $20 to your bottom line. So whether it's a, an additional revenue or a savings expense, a savings in the expense side, it still has the same net effect of improving your NOI. So yeah. it's you have to look at it from both sides, not just look at the big glitzy, what can generate the most money, but what can save on expenses. Um, getting rid of carpet and going with LVP. It's not just because it's the fad thing to do. It's because carpets have a shorter life, uh, life expectancy. And I don't know many people that see a stain in the middle of the floor and they cut out that square and just patch it in. You don't do that, right? <laughs> but if, if you have an LVP floor and one of those planks gets damaged, guess what? You cut the plank out, you put a new plank down, it doesn't stand out as much. And then you yeah. can re-wax the entire floor and it looks uniform again anyway. So again, it's an expense line, right? It might cost more to put the plank down, you'll get more life out of it, and it makes repairs so much better and cheaper down the road. Love that, man. And that was actually something that I, I kind of wanted to pick your brain about as well. Um, it, it was kind of funny, like how we segmented that into that anyway, is kind of like the tech side in like today's day and age of like, um, you know, like the, the keyless entry. Um, did you kind of see anything in like, like the REIT worlds in regards to like, like sensors and like anything like, like builds and automation, um, you know, like anything like that by any yeah. chance? Yeah, uh, I mean, probably one of my biggest projects um, was it was improved drastically um, after a risk assessment was performed. This is a, a I mean, I could I could give you so many examples of of technology uh, saving <laughs> our bacon, um, but I'll give you one which was probably the most like in my face at the time. Um, so we had a building that ended up taking on water from. A variety of possible reasons but regardless we got water into the basement of our building yeah. in this building we had all of our electrical gear and this isn't just an outlet right this is the entire switch gear of a of a multi-hundred unit class a property yeah. um water got in right and it's a it was water getting into a room that was never designed to have water in it right so <laughs> that's not a good situation and it of course no. happened at two o'clock in the morning so um it was an extremely expensive insurance loss insurance claim um it was a very long project to put back together but the benefit was that came out of it is after that project was done i put cameras in this room i put a leak detection rope around the entire perimeter of this this room and tied it to the building's uh, bms the building management system nice. that building management system was tied to my cell phone so if anybody like spilt a, a drop of water on this perimeter line at any time any doesn't matter what i would get an instant alert text the front desk would get an alert test because they were 24 hours a day and there was a process that I had put in place that if you get this text, you pull up that camera and you check if there's water in that basement. You check this, the panel, it tells you where, because we had it mapped out. So if it told you that there was a leak at 57 feet, you could look at the map that I had created and know 57 feet is on this wall and it's like between two pieces of equipment or whatever it is. So you could really hone in on it, get all that data, and then call the on-call service guy and say, look, we have an emergency. You need to get down here. And then we could hopefully fix it before we ended up with three feet of water in an electrical room. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so 100% technology, uh, it, was, it was unfortunately a hard learned lesson, right? Because this room was never designed to allow water. And 
by some chance it did. And now we had to make sure that we put every possible belt and suspender we could on this property. So we'd never incur a loss like that ever again. Um, the other, other, uh, technology experience I had that was really beneficial was a new construction, new development building. And we had all smart sensors. We had uh, smart leak detection. So we had um, uh, water sensors in our AC closets. Uh, we had water sensors in, we had a combination um, domestic and heat system. So you'd have domestic hot water and your radiant heat um, uh, being filtered from this one combination unit. So we yep. had a, a water sensor in there. And our laundry machines also had a water sensor that would trip so that if water hit that pan, it would shut the power off and it would shut the water off to the laundry machine. Nice. So let's say a hose blew out the back of your laundry, your washing machine, it hit that sensor. That sensor would automatically shut the power down and shut the water off to the laundry to make sure that you didn't continue to flood out that, that unit. Um, so in a, in a new construction building, having all those systems operated, we found all of the air conditioners that were not operating properly because we also had smart thermostats. And I could pull up a report um, and I would, I'd set my parameter and say, you know, what units have over 60% humidity right now? And I'd pull it up and be like, oh, okay, crap. Like there's a handful of units that are 60% humid or, or more. So we could then target those units, go up to the roof, check the rooftop units, we found like shorted circuits. We found it, uh, found wires that were uh, chewed through by uh, pests, things like yeah. that. <laughs> um, so we could troubleshoot all that stuff without waiting for it to be a service call from a tenant, right? Um, and as a as a uh, as a vacant building, we could also control our utility costs by turning up and turning down the units, turning on and turning off the lights as we needed uh, to make things, you know work for us so that we weren't just drawing energy in a vacant uh, property. Because when you have over a hundred units and you forget to turn the light off of a hundred units, it adds up. And if you're, yeah. if you have a vacant building, that's your expense. And that's, that can be pretty expensive. And if you have an air conditioning unit that is continually trying to cool uh, a room that is overly humid, and then you find out that your condensate pump is completely failed and it's somehow bypassed the system or we found situations where the water sensor because it was so sensitive if the water sensor tripped it would shut down the condenser right so you wouldn't get any any cooling effect at all um and other conditions during construction that water sensor maybe landed on a piece of debris tucked in this closet and we didn't know that so we wouldn't find out that the sensor would trip until there was three inches of water in this closet and when three inches of water shows up in a HVAC closet, your drywall is now saturated and been saturated for a while. We didn't catch it till maybe the next day because somebody had elevated this sensor. So we didn't get it until it was too high. And it had yeah. gone a couple of days in hot conditions, in dark conditions, in wet conditions. We'd have mold running rampant. So we'd have to go in and do all sorts of cutting of a brand new building, which is not, not fun. So, yes, technology has saved us on numerous occasions. Um, but it comes at a price, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it is expensive to implement. Um, but you know, it does, it does help give you the data that you need to make the right decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's extremely cool, man, especially kind of coming from that part of the trade a little bit. Um, you know, so I, I definitely hear you when it comes to, uh, you know, kind of like the Johnson controls and, you know, some of the, the BAS and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, no, it's, it's incredibly powerful, man. Like even like our whole entire conversation, um, one of the, uh, like kind of common variables is like just how differently, um, how differently like you can operate in terms of like, like people and systems at a much higher level level, you know, in like the syndication world and, you know, and above, um, you know, in comparison to like, you know, smaller, uh, like commercial, residential multis, stuff like that. It's, um, it really is incredible, man. You know what I mean? Like, cause I mean, like, you're not going to be able to put, you know, like a, like JCI, you know, system in a six family, you know, with like actuators and like all this like crazy stuff going on, you know what I mean? But, you know, in, in like a huge building, like you said, I mean, you're going to be able to pull up like the trends of like certain things going on and like really be able to hone in. And, you know, there's probably going to be some sort of role 
um, you know, associated to, you know, checking that data, um, you know, trying to give solutions, that type of thing. Um, a lot more, a lot more like, you know, capital and, and bandwidth to be able to, to leverage, to optimize, um, you know, the, those particular properties the best that they can. It's, um, yeah, but even even taking it to a personal level, right? I mean, imagine the customer experience, and that's yeah. that's what this technology frees up, right? It frees up your your uh, your service team or your property management team to focus on the customer at the end of the day. Yep. Now, imagine the experience of a of a of a tenant of a resident that they experience water coming out of their water heater closet, and it's now damaged their brand new shoes that are on the floor right there, or a package of of like family pictures, they're gonna call you in a certain emotional state, okay? Now imagine the experience when you get the alert that there's a drip of water in that closet and you proactively go there and say, hey, I just gotta check something, we got a little alert. You stop that catastrophe from ever happening. Imagine the, tr the, the communication between the tenant, you know what I mean? It's just, it, it it just changes the it changes the dyna dynamic completely and in today's day and age customer service is an amenity that's hard to put a dollar value on but it is important for the the life expectancy of your organization and your community you know what i mean your reputation you know if you are constantly getting five star reviews then don't you think that property would be a little bit more open to Hey, we got to charge you a little bit more because you're getting white glove service um, and smiling at your your customers walking down the hallway and knowing your customers pets names things like that you don't really get that opportunity when you're dealing with a very high need value add property and you don't have any of these types of technology in place or you have a really fully stretched service team um, and they just they don't want to really be friendly with anybody they just want to do their job because yeah as soon as they take a breath, they finish that job, they take a good breath. Guess what? The dishwasher just went in unit 25B. Yep. You know what I mean? So it's like it's a constant, a constant battle and it doesn't allow you to prepare and have your stuff in line. Um, and I mean, even on the technology side, when you have a big enough property and you have um, inventory, right, you, you should keep inventory on hand. So you're not running to Home Depot to grab a piece of pipe that you need. And you can start building inventory systems in place and have big, big companies like uh, HD Supply, who I'm a big fan of. I have a lot of good connections over there. Um, they can come in and they build this inventory system for you where you tell them, hey, at any given time, I need to have three of these no matter what. And they come in, they scan your systems and they're like, oh, we only have two of those elbows. So I got to get one on order for you. And they handle your inventory management. You know what I mean? And it's like, hey, we told you we needed a minimum of three. You looked at the box. There was only two. And then you just automatically ship me a box and we just put them away. So, yeah, there's definitely ways to leverage that to to benefit you guys as operator or you guys. I mean, benefit all of us as operators. Um, once you know where you start to have those those leaks in the in the organization, the system, it's like I really want to take some time and some some energy sap away from my service team. Great. Look at where they spend their time. Now, what technology can you implement to make that better? Or, I mean, laundry units, for God's sakes. I mean, we we know, we personally know people that have pictures of them taking 300, 400 pounds of coins out of laundry machines. You know what I mean? And it's like, there are more efficient ways. I can't tell you the stories that I'd hear from these people, like the, the service managers on some of these properties. And like, I remember we'd have a guy that comes in here with a station wagon. He'd go building the building, collecting all the coins. And by the time he left, his station wagon was grinding on the road, <laughs> trying like... to go to the bank. Um, and I mean, just a simple application of like rechargeable cards. You know what I mean? And you now have cashless laundry. And it just takes so much energy and effort away from the site team to now give them their time and energy back to focus on customer service which will help drive your property value that much more. So again, I'm not all about nuts and bolts. I've been around enough to tell you that at the end of the day, you know, personal interaction can actually generate more revenue for you. I love that, man. That's freaking golden. Dan, thank you so, so much for coming on here, man. This was absolutely awesome. Guys, I definitely recommend like listening to that again and really like just soaking in 
like all of that information there is so many friggin nuggets in there like my head's spinning right now like i'm not gonna sleep tonight yeah. it just is sorry I, I know I, I <laughs> i'm passionate about it so i love talking about it so if you, hell yeah if you need me to slow it down or play it at like you know 0.75 speed or something like that um or or you just reach out to me i'll be happy to talk about it over and over again <laughs> Exactly. Absolutely, man. And and that was the other thing I wanted to ask is like, you know, where on social media um, can you be reached? Like where can people get in touch with Real Value Ventures? Everything you want is I'll tag down below. Uh, yeah, I mean, Real Value Dan is my handle on just about everything. So it's, uh, you know, on Facebook and, and Instagram, it's Real Value dot Dan on uh, LinkedIn and YouTube. It's just Real Value Dan. Uh, no dots, all one word. Um, so yeah, I mean, you Google that, you'll probably find me. Um, my webpage is realvalueventures.com. Um, I am not a web builder, so you know, take it easy on my webpage. I I just have it there <laughs> to have a presence. Uh, it could definitely be improved, but uh, you know, that's you're that's not alone, Dan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you are not alone, man. I assure you. Yeah. <laughs> That's a wrap for today's episode. We want to thank you for being a valued listener of the Creating Wealth Podcast. Make sure to visit www.creatingwealth.com to connect with us. Dive into our ever-expanding library of informative blogs. Get access to our private investor portal and explore a wide range of additional valuable resources. Stay tuned for our next episode as we continue to create wealth together. Thank you